0: Upper merchant Francisco Pelsart, captain Arjen Jakobzon, and about 40 other people are sailing in the longboat north along the immense coast of Het Zaudland. More than two weeks have passed since they had left the Houtmans Abrolhos. They had decided to go to Het Zaudland and search for food and water to bring back to the wreck of the Batavia. When they were able to find a safe place to land, They discovered a world almost entirely opposite from the one they had left behind in Holland. Where Holland was green, wet, crowded with people, and maintained entirely by the hands of those people, this place place was red, dry, barren, and totally wild. Strange, huge, rat-like creatures with long legs, powerful tails, and sometimes standing up to eight feet tall. Jumped around the dusty landscape, while giant flightless birds on long, backwards-bending legs walked in huge groups, and there was barely a sign of any person, any people, despite the occasional plume of smoke being visible from the boat. Once, they came across a party of completely naked, black people, sitting around a fire, eating crabs, but these people sprinted away from them as soon as they appeared. This was the first encounter between European and Aboriginal Australian cultures. If only the rest of them had been so relatively harmless. Pelsart's decision to leave 180 people behind on Batavia's graveyard, it must have weighed heavily on him. He had decided to keep the most skilled sailors, including Captain zone and Jan Everson, the high bosun, with him because he realised that the only way anybody would survive would be if they were able to find food and water. When the initial searches of the high islands had proven fruitless, they decided to go to Het the mainland, to look for provisions there. If that also proved impossible, they would attempt to complete the roughly 3000 thousand-kilometer voyage to Batavia to inform the Dutch authorities about the situation and to bring a rescue ship to save the abandoned survivors. Those people had been horrified when they saw the captain and the commander of the fleet disappearing over the horizon, and we know somewhat how they must have felt, as the tiny island which Pelsart had made his base now became known as Traitor's Island. So was this a betrayal? Well, not from Pelsart's point of view. Remember the oath that all employees of the VOC had to take upon beginning their service to the company? It said, I promise loyalty, trust, and utmost obedience in the performance of my duties wherever I am taken or sent. It's intriguing whether wherever I am taken or sent— was also meant to include a miserable coral island in the middle of nowhere with no obvious water source and a rapidly diminishing food supply. But to Pelsart, it did. He was amongst men who apparently had wanted to kill him, with the only decent boat around, and having to make a decision upon which the lives of almost 300 people counted, knowing that he represented the authority of the VOC, he also knew that the consequences of his decision here would rest squarely on his shoulders, and no other. In a best-case scenario, were they to survive the ordeal getting to the fort at Batavia, the earliest they could bring a rescue ship back would still be months, months that the survivors on Batavia's graveyard would have to endure in these absolutely awful conditions. So, in the face of this very difficult decision, Pelsart did what many administrators throughout history have become very adept at doing, and he covered his ass, Knowing that to sail away from the main group of survivors would be to probably sign their death warrants, Pelsart wrote up a contract to be signed by everyone on the longboat stating that it was a group decision and made in the best interests of all the survivors. The contract read, Since on all the islands or reefs round about our founded ship Batavia, there is no water to be found, in order to feed and keep the saved people alive, therefore the commander has earnestly besought us and proposed that we should sail to the mainland in order to see if God will grant that we find water there, to assist the people with as many trips from there until we can be certain that they will be able to remain alive for some considerable time, and meanwhile command someone to bring our sad happenings to the Honourable Lord General, to which we, the undersigned, have consented now that the need has been placed before us of how greatly important it is to be responsible before God and the High Authorities." having agreed and resolved to do our utmost duty in order to help our poor companions in their distress, in token of the truth, we have signed with our own hand and have sworn it in the presence of all people this 8th of June, 1629. Just for a second, can you imagine how ridiculous this would have been? This is a carefully worded and typically laborious 17th-century-style agreement. So, imagine this group, 40-odd of them, sitting on this tiny island, having decided to head for the mainland, realizing the ramifications for the people that they were leaving behind. And Pelsart would have spent at least some time drafting, reading out, discussing, and redrafting this contract. Is that scene not a ridiculous testament to how the weight of VOC authority still stood firm in the minds of people facing an absolutely dire and exceptional situation? Bloody oath it is. With this tidy little contract folded up neatly in his pocket, and still wielding the authority of the VOC on board this longboat, Pelsart and this smaller group that includes men who had been plotting mutiny against him will end up undertaking one of the greatest small-vessel voyages ever recorded. Against the elements and with scant supplies, Captain Jacobson again proves his mastery of the sea, and over 39 days he will bring the open longboat safely north across the Indian Ocean and towards Java and the Dutch fort of the VOC, the fort of Batavia. Perhaps this little contract held the people on that longboat together, so that they might achieve such an incredible feat. Despite the apparent mutiny and division between the leaders in this group, under the weight of their oaths to themselves and to the VOC, they put survival first, and they managed to succeed. It's actually pretty amazing. The people they left behind, on that barren island in the Helpmans of Brolis, will also adhere to the authority of the VOC. Their commander Pelsart has abandoned them. Geronimus, the lower merchant who doesn't believe in sin or hell and who was just washed up on the shore, he will take his place as the highest-ranking company officer. He will also write oaths and contracts for people to say and sign. He will also carry these in his pocket, and so enforce VOC authority. Unlike the people on the longboat, however, survival and success on this island are not going to be a part of the package. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me, a podcast about resistance and rebellion. This is The Unfortunate Voyage of the Batavia, Episode 6, Bloody Oath. This episode is brought to you by spoilers. A lot of people are about to be brutally murdered. Deal with it. After resting for a day, Geronimus emerges from the makeshift tent. He has been given dry clothes, all of which had belonged to Pelsart before being washed ashore amidst the General Flotsam. So, wearing the red cloak of the commander, he surveys the dreary and the desolate island full of thirsty people around him. He notices that the soldiers have separated themselves slightly from the rest of the group and that, although the water situation seems to have been sorted out for the time being, there is not much in terms of shelter. But now that he's out and about, Geronimus is quickly appointed to the Rad, the council, and soon he takes his natural position as its leader. He goes about making a great show of organising hunting and water search parties, improving and maintaining the very meagre accommodations, and constructing a giant tent for himself to live in. He also commands that all the food and water stores that had been brought to and washed up on the island, were to be kept in a giant tent next to his giant tent, and he appoints certain people to guard that tent. Those people all seem to us to be the same ones who our friend Jan Pelgrim had been hanging out with on the ship. Geronimus declares that every piece of driftwood is to be collected from here on in, from the shore, and the carpenters from the Batavia are to fashion them into small yawls, with which they can scour the wreck and the other islands, looking for more provisions. After one is finished, he sends a group of his guard to search all those other islands for fresh water. When they return, they report to him that they hadn't found water on any of the islands, he tells them to remain quiet about their findings. Let's just stop for a second and imagine what must be going through Geronimus' head at this point. As far as he can deduce the upper merchant and the captain, they must have decided to sail all the way to Batavia to try to get help. It will take months for any rescue ship to arrive, which means that somehow. He, Geronimus, must survive for that long here. But how is that going to be possible with 180 other mouths to feed and water? There just aren't the resources on these islands to support such a big group. As far as Geronimus can figure, probably about 40 people will be able to survive here. So the logical conclusion is that, one way or another, more than a hundred people need to be gotten rid of. This logic actually makes a certain amount of sense. If you are a psychopath. The idea of deliberately wanting to make a lot of people die would probably make most other people shudder and not go through with it. That's because most normal people have a moral code that says that killing other people is the wrong thing to do. Geronimus, though, remember believes that every compulsion he has must have been sent to him by God. And since God is good, so too must these compulsions be divinely justified. Therefore, in Jeronimus' eyes, he would be doing a godly act if he was to, say, send these people to their death. Logic. When it's based on bad foundations, it can justify some really messed up things. We are feeling like crap. Energy is low amongst almost everybody here. People don't speak much, and when they do, it is usually to complain. One evening, after a sea lion hunt, as a group of us hold chunks of fatty flesh over a fire, one man starts complaining about the meal, the situation, and just about life in general. He makes some reasonable points especially about the food and that its supply is quickly diminishing. The sea lion population has almost been completely wiped out. The man's name is Reichert Waltersson. He was the one who'd been drinking on the sinking ship and in a drunken fervour had ripped up Pelsart's journal, after Geronimus had given it a public reading, of course. He is an older, more experienced sailor, and he had been close to Jan Ebertson, the High Bossen. At the moment, though, he is not at all fond of Jan Ebertson, or the Captain, or the Upper Merchant, or anybody who has anything to do with the VOC. Valderson tells everyone around the fire that he had been sleeping on the ship with a sword under his pillow, waiting for Jakobson's command to rise up, kill pelsa and take control of Batavia, using her to live a life of piracy and plunder. Valdezon had done everything the captain had asked of him, been prepared to betray the VOC for him. But now, as a reward for his loyalty, he had been left here to die with the rest of us scum. The rest of us scum, standing around the fire, We continue to just stare into the blackening meat on the coals, and nobody really says much. So, there was a mutiny being planned, we think to ourselves. Now it has been confirmed, but really, at this point, who cares? For about two weeks, all we've lived on is sea lion and seagull meat, and what meagre rations of dried meat and water the rod dishes out every day. Whatever we have is running out. We are sunburnt, constantly parched, and losing hope rapidly. That's all we can think about. In the morning, we are set to work by Geronimus to help the construction of another small boat. When we get to the work site, though, nobody is doing much work. Instead, they are gathered around the blue-faced corpse of reichert walter the complainer from the night before. A rope was looped around his neck, and his body was propped up against the frame of the boat. This was definitely not a death from natural causes. In a red-coated flurry, Geronimus arrives on the scene, flanked by several of his guards, all of whom also seem to be decked out in the red cloth of the commander. This is murder, cries Geronimus, and he storms off, Soon, everybody is commanded to gather around his tent. He addresses us all. We cannot allow such lawlessness to be permitted here, Geronimus tells the assembled survivors. Therefore, all weapons, swords, knives, morning stars, pikes, muskets, and any other such dangerous objects are to be handed to his guards immediately. For the protection of everybody. Following this, as we go back to working on the boat construction, we see the soldiers and the sailors on the island bring forth any of the so called dangerous objects. They are all stashed in Geronimus' tent. The unfortunate voyage of the Batavia will continue after this short break. The next day, Geronimus again assembles everybody. This time he announces that, having sent his men off to search for water and food the previous days, they had returned with what was actually life-saving news. Water had been found. Now everybody here can survive. All we need to do is split up and go and colonize the different islands in the archipelago. This news is met with a mixture of surprise, hope, but also some scepticism. To us, it is dubious, as those islands are the same ones that Pelsart and the captain had explored a fortnight earlier. If any food or water had been on there, surely they would have found it. Furthermore, if there is any food or water on those islands, why would we split up? Shouldn't we just all go over to that island? But, Jeronimus is in command, And so it is that 45 people are ferried from Batavia's graveyard to a nearby island filled with seals and, apparently, water. They are sent with the most senior-ranked soldier, a man named Gabriel Jakobson, and a few other men, but the majority of them are women, children, and the cabin boys from the Batavia. As they are being loaded onto the ship, Geronimus comforts them and tells them, Not to worry, because they will be looked after, and should anything go wrong, they can always be resupplied from Batavia's graveyard. Later that day, Viva Hayes and the soldiers who had gravitated to him in the aftermath of the wreck and the first few days on Batavia's graveyard, are told that they too shall be leaving the island. Since they had been so successful in procuring water here, They were to go to the high islands and secure that natural water supply. Once they had got as much water as possible, they were to light three fires, 100 yards apart, as a signal to those on Batavia's graveyard. And so, in a very short time, another 20 mouths have now left. The following day, yet another group of people, this time led by one of the Rad members, Peter Jansson. They are all ordered by Geronimus to go to Traitor's Island to collect the driftwood which had washed up on its shore and to construct rafts. Jansson protests to Geronimus that they've already spent a night on Traitor's Island and they know for sure that there is no natural water there. Geronimus promises though that once they have made their rafts, They will be allowed to sail to the high islands with them, and so join Viber Hayes and the soldiers with all the fresh water that they are bound to find there. Also, since he is a counsellor, he should set a good example to the others. So, he and 14 of these others, they return to the barren sandy speck of Coral, and they set to work building life Lyfra. Thus, in two days, the population of Batavia's graveyard has dropped by about 80 people. We are still here, and to be honest, we're not that happy about it. We notice that a lot of Geronimus' guards are the ones who were with us on the ship the first night, and we've seen what happens when they get drunk and take charge. All of a sudden, they make up a substantial portion of those remaining here, and they have all of the weapons. We had been thinking to go with Viva Hayes and his soldiers, but Jan Pelgrim, our mate from the ship, he has convinced us to stay here. His favourite person in the world, Geronimus, is finally in charge, and things can only get better from here. We don't share his enthusiasm, but at least we've got someone to still play Tic Tac with. Over the next week, which we spend working on constructing boats, Geronimus' men start to exert a greater sense of authority, particularly by the way that they swagger around and are now talking down at everybody else. In their red clothes, they are confident. What with their armoury and their access to the only store of provisions? They start speaking for Geronimus, as he starts to turn his attention more to one particular survivor, rather than the community. He turns his attention to Lucretia Yarns. For Lucretia, the nightmare which her life has become has only continued to get worse and worse on Batavia's graveyard. After being courted by both the captain and Pelsa during the trip, after being ostracised and abused to the culminating point of being attacked and having shit smeared on her face... She now has Geronimus persisting that she join his bed, what with the fact that his is the best and most spacious tent. She obviously declines him, as she remains in one of the smaller tents, sharing with two other women whose sailor husbands were lost in the wreck. She spends her time tending to the ill, of whom there are quite a few on the island and becoming more and more with every day. They, together, have been quartered under one slightly larger tent, but still in the general community of terrible accommodations that we have to put up with. One of the most haunting parts is the issue of a near-permanent galing wind that whips through the entire place, creating a cacophony of lashing ropes and flapping canvas that is constantly getting looser and needing ever-alert attention to keep it all in place. Geronimus at this stage is not in absolute control, not yet. The Rad is officially still the governing body of the island, and although he is its leader, the other members can together outvote and veto him in any decision. This potential for conflict is realised one day, on the 4th of July, when one of the Batavia's gunners is caught with a barrel of wine that he had stolen from the supply tent and shared with a fellow gunner. By committing this crime, the gunner who has stolen the wine has also stolen the property of the VOC, thus earning a punishment of death. His accomplice, however, a guy called Arian Arianson, who had just agreed to probably the worst idea of having a piss-up with your mate in history, did not deserve to pay the same price, according to every member on the RAD except for one. Geronimus. Geronimus sees it otherwise. He believes both men deserve to die, and he is upset when the others disagree with his judgment. We hear him shouting from the tent during the council meeting, How can you not let this happen? You will soon have to resolve on something quite else. The next day, Geronimus, using his VOC authority, insists that the council members are not following the regulations of the company, and so he dissolves the rod, insisting that he has little choice but to choose a new one. This new governing body is to be made up of none other than his red-cloaked bodyguards. Now they are in complete control, and they waste no time in asserting their authority. In addition to the two gunners, two carpenters are also accused of plotting to steal the boats, which we have been busy making, the new rod quickly issues judgment, sentencing them to death as well. Geronimus's men, in front of the quite astonished eyes of everybody else, round up all the accused and convicted men, and take them off to be executed. One, however, is missing: the wine-drinking accomplice, Arian Arianson who the old rod had wanted to save from death, he appears to have saved himself and has vanished overnight. The guards absurdly walk with the condemned over to the other side of the island, where everybody can still see them, and they carry out the sentence by having swords driven into the guts of the convicted and then drowning them in the wash of tide. The three bodies remain on the beach, lapped by foam and blood visible to all, Including those on Traitors Island, that is, until the sun goes down over their lifeless forms. The next day, Geronimus handpicks six people and orders them to go out to Vibeheiser's Island, the High Islands. None of them are wearing red, but the men who row them out there, they all are. The day after, another five people are chosen. And ordered to leave because apparently, up with Vibe Hayes, they need more skilled people. This time the boat returns, but one of the group has remained on board. We wonder why he did not get off at the island. His name is Andries de Vries, and he looks really shaken. Walking up the beach, he is led by the red guards into Geronimus's tent. When he comes out, he's also wearing red. Every day since our arrival, the Predicant has been dutifully holding sermons on the beach, in the early morning. Numbers of those attending, they have been getting fewer and fewer. It is generally a mix of the civilian passengers that remain, the Predicant's seven children, wife and servant girl, and some of the soldiers and sailors. Not a single one, though, wears the red to indicate membership of Geronimus' inner circle. As we attend one of these services, we pay more attention to the crowd than we do to the Predicant himself. Lucretia is also there. Supposedly she is a frequent attendee. The Predicant's children, they sit front and center, and we can't help but notice his eldest daughter. She's about 21 years old. She does get a lot of attention. The Predicant's words are interrupted every now and then by the crying of a young girl, belonging to one of the soldiers in the crowd, a German, with a very German name, Hans. The child's mother, named Anakin, similar to Darth Vader's, she is also there attempting to comfort this starving girl. Suddenly, there is a stir in the crowd, as we all notice the Geronimus himself has walked down and he is standing close by, He listens for a moment, and then he loudly declares that the predicate and all others are to immediately cease this religious worship, as there is no such thing as heavenly law, and the only word that matters here is his. There is an outcry, but Geronimus continues. Some of his men have also started to walk towards us, encircling the worshippers. Now Geronimus issues his latest law, to come into effect immediately. He tells us that, in the interests of the common good, and since there are so many more males on this island than females, certain women have been chosen for the common service of his men. They are to satisfy their every need and do whatever they are asked to do. Lucretia yarns, however, she will be obliged to serve him and to sleep in his tent. Furthermore, The Predicant's eldest daughter, this 21-year-old, is to be married to one of his men, Kunrat von Hausen. Geronimus tells us that we are not to yet know who the women will be, but they will all be fetched shortly. Making to leave, he turns back once more and, looking directly at the German soldier, Hans, standing by his wife, Anakin, and their little crying daughter, Geronimus does something strange and he invites them to dine with him in his great tent. But this dinner is just for adults, he says, continuing that one of his men will look after their daughters so they need not worry. The shocked couple nod cautiously. When Hans and Anakin return to their tent that night after dining with the lower merchant and now commander of the island, Their daughter is nowhere to be seen, but there is blood everywhere. As he tries to comfort and silence the sobs of his wife, Hans becomes the first person on this island to truly understand what the authority of Geronimus Cornelison will mean. Most people's reaction would be to want to get revenge for the death or disappearance of their daughter. Hans, however, he wants nothing more than for he and his wife to survive. So the next day, we see him offering help to Geronimus' guards. We also see his wife, Anakin, being escorted to the tent, which has now been erected for the women of common service. Suddenly, on this island, you are either with Geronimus, or you are dead. This has all quickly turned extremely bad. The chaos aboard the ship in its final moments is now being put into practice as a literal regime of terror on this island. We start to consider if it would be best to flee and to make our way towards Viber Hayes and his men. Although it has been nearly twenty days since Hayes left, and surely they must have perished, as no signal has been given indicating that they found water. We feel we must talk about this with Jan, and so that afternoon, we find him sitting on a beach, sharpening a blade on a bit of whetstone that he'd found. Jan is nowhere near as troubled by these goings-on as we are. In fact, he tells us this is the best situation he's ever been in. By now, he too is wearing the red to indicate loyalty and belonging to Geronimus' guard, he is getting food every day, from what provisions remain, and he also gets access to the women for common service. Lustfully, he boasts that the day before, he had still been a virgin, but by lunchtime today, he'd already been with three of the whores, as he puts it. We ask Jan if he is not troubled by any of it, and he stares at us, continuing to rub his knife on the stone. No. Not at all, he says. Why? Are you? Before we get a chance to answer, though, there is a shout from the beach. Smoke! Three fires on the high islands! Viva Hayes has found water! Unbelievably, as we look over at the high island in the distance, we too see what is exactly the predecided signal for fresh water. Rather than perishing... Haze has succeeded. Now there is action everywhere. Geronimus seems more shocked than anyone at the smoke in the distance. Another shout comes up that the smaller group, which had been sent to Traitor's Island to build rafts, they have also seen the signals. They have been waiting for this moment. Everybody watches as they push out on their floating bits of wood and embark on a journey to reach Haze and, more importantly, fresh water. Geronimus nods to his gang of men, who quickly run to their own small yawls, which we had been helping construct, and they start moving them, out, to the sea. We can do nothing but watch as the horrific scene plays out in front of us. The pathetic rafts that those on Trader's Island had managed to make are barely able to float, let alone manoeuvre in these treacherous waters. The ones made by us, on the larger island, they catch up quickly. At first we think that Geronimus's men are also heading for haze, so as to bring fresh water back for us all. This, however, is not what they do. Once they catch up to the crappy little raft and after pushing it in towards shallower water, the men start jumping onto it, the gathered survivors on board shriek and as we watch, we see the sun glinting off several blades as they seem to swing down onto the group. In the shallows between Seal's Island and Batavia's Graveyard, several of the women jump out of the ship and they try to escape, but they are quickly bundled up onto the guard's boat, taken out to deeper water. And there, they are drowned. Nobody on Batavia's Graveyard, where we have now been for about a month, Misses any of this, now, we all come to understand just what Hans the German had. Geronimus's reign is one of terror, and now, he has nothing to hide. Here, we decide we need to run, or float, or swim away, something, anything. If we are to survive this, we must get off this island of nightmares. But how? We start making a plan to rope together a meagre raft, which we figure we will hide as best as possible behind some small rocky outcrop. In the morning, with these thoughts already on our mind, we are suddenly startled by a terrified scream, coming from the medical tent. We rush over along with many others, and there we find Lucretia Yarns, bent over and retching outside the ward. Looking in, we find that all 11 people inside are dead. What killed them is obvious, and it was not their illnesses. Each one lays there, throats all slit, the sand below them stained with blood. As we walk back, more determined than ever to find a way to build some raft so that we can escape, we see Andres de Vries the one person who would returned from sending this group over to Viva Hayes. He is sitting on the beach, rocking slightly backwards and forth. The red of his clothes is now matched by what we see is red on his hands. Geronimus decides that, well, much like Pelsart, things had gone far enough before needing a certain bureaucratic and officiality added to it all. His actions, which are those of the VOC that he represents, they must be justified and sanctioned properly. So what does that mean? That means oaths. Geronimus orders that those among his group, those wearing red and enforcing his governance, they must now be bound together in unified adherence to his authority. So he makes them sign or make a mark on an oath Just like we had all done to the VOC before stepping on the ship, and which Pelsart had insisted upon from those in the longboat with him, we see Geronimus as a man, approaching the tent. In total, they are about twenty-five, and that twenty-five includes our friend Jan Pelgrim, and unbelievably, Hans, the German, whose child had been murdered and whose wife is now a woman for the common service. Our curiosity gets the better of us, so we sneak around the back and, hopefully having remained unseen, we squat down and lean in to try to hear what is happening on the other side. Once all 25 men are inside, they are told to recite this oath. We undersigned persons in order to remove all distrust that may be amongst us, or that may arise between us and never more to have any recollection of such, will promise with this written agreement, making to each other the greatest oath that anyone can take, to be faithful in everything, so help us God, and will take the same on the salvation of our souls, to be faithful in everything, also that we shall do no harm to any of us undersigned, nor make any plan before the one has warned the other, nor shall anyone, without the other knowing it, undertake anything, be it by favour or by hatred, but assist one another in brotherly affection in all matters that may happen. And towards further security, we have signed this separately, this 12th of July, Anno, 1629, thus done on the island named Batavia's graveyard. We cannot believe any of this, and hurriedly rush back to our sleeping space after hearing the oath. From there, we hear the frivolity as those new brothers in blood toast to their success, and to everything they will now accomplish together. Obviously, Geronimus allows several bottles of booze to be opened and consumed. As we lay there, trying to allow the whistling wind to distract us from the sounds of these butcherous men and from the ideas of what they might do next, we hear a scream piercing the night air. It is followed quickly by another close by. We freeze for a moment, only to hear footsteps approaching our tent. The flap opens, and there is the silhouette of Jan Pelgrim swaying slightly before us. What do you want, Yarn? We ask him. I don't want to do this, but I've sworn an oath. Holy shit, we are about to get murdered by Yarn Pelgrim, our little mate. He lunges suddenly and drunkenly forward, and we see that he is holding a knife in his hand, probably the one he'd been sharpening earlier. Our instincts take over, and we prop up, reaching out for anything we can use to defend ourselves. One thing comes to hand, the tic-tac board, that we'd salvaged from the wreck. We swing it wildly at the onrushing Yan and manage to knock the knife from his hand. We throw the board as hard as we can at his head and sprint out of the tent, barging him over as we do so. No time to build a raft anymore. We run as fast as we can away from Yan and his drunken howls of protestation and we head to the beach picking up a plank we find laying there. We disobey Geronimus' new religious ban, say a quick prayer, and once more, launch ourselves into the Black Sea. We have no choice but to try and make it to the high islands. Anything has to be better than this. It takes a day of floating, swimming, and generally trying to remain as inconspicuous as possible as we move in the direction of the smoke signals that indicate Viva Hayes and his men. When we do make it, we are met on the beach by the only person we have seen in the last month whose leadership qualities have actually helped keep people alive. We are met by Viva Hayes. Once more, we are being looked down upon, but this time, it is quite a friendly face. Why have you come alone, and why hasn't anybody responded to our signals? Hayes asks us. We cough and splutter, and starting to cry, we stumble to our feet, and the jumble of words that escape our mouth somehow manages to tell him all the things that have happened over the last week. Geronimus might not believe in hell, but on Batavia's graveyard, he has created one. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Stuff What You Tell Me. Murder, mayhem, sex slavery, it's been pretty horrendous. So much so that we need a quick break to regather our thoughts. The next episode will hopefully be out in three weeks time. In the meantime, feel free to listen to our back catalogue and check out our series about Martin Luther and his own personal form of rebellion. Of course, as always, we invite you to check out extra information and videos and show notes on our website, www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com. You're always welcome to contact us on social media, facebook.com stuffwhatyoutellme. And please try to give us a five-star review on iTunes. Get there. Do it. Come on.